Good morning. Well, I invite all the children to come forward and sit on these two front benches, and we'll start off with the children's meeting this morning. Well, good morning. It's good to have each of you here. Where's all your friends out? Sometimes we have two benches full, and this morning we only have one. Maybe they grew up, got too big to come. You reckon that's what happened? Y'all like to sing? Don't get worried. I'm not going to lead any songs. I'd like to talk about a song. We sing a song sometimes called, God is so big, so strong, and so powerful, there's nothing my God cannot do. Y'all know that song? Is that song true? It is? Is there anything God can't do? It's not? Okay. Well, that song is talking about creation, so I agree with that part. Is there anything that God cannot do that the Bible says God can't do? There's nothing God can't do? Are you sure the Bible doesn't say there's something God can't do? What is it? Nothing? All right. Let me read some verses to you. <clears throat> Paul is writing, Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, and he starts out this God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Hebrews 6.18 by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So I'm going to ask you again, is there anything God cannot do? You still think there's, not something, there's nothing God couldn't do? What is it? Thank you. God cannot tell a lie. And you know what that also means? God cannot break a promise. See, if God can't tell a lie... He also cannot break a promise, and there's, someone said there's 3,000 promises in the Bible, and God will, has, and will keep every one of his promises. So there is something God cannot do, all right? And there's another verse that I've thought about. By the way, this morning's uh, message title is Walking in Truth. Uh, so we sing that song, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do, and of course I think about it. Well, God can't lie. But it is, that's the one thing God can't do. But I'll tell you a little secret. There's some songs that us big people sing that aren't always true either. And I appreciate Alan. He straightened us out on some theological and doctrine stuff this morning, and I like that because some of the songs we sing don't agree with what Brother Alan said. But uh, thank you, Alan. I, I was saying amen. Maybe not as loud as I should have been, but yeah. So yeah, sometimes songs don't always tell the whole truth. But anyway. You know, there's another verse in the Bible that's talking about uh, John, he's writing, and he said, there's nothing that gives him more joy than knowing that his children walk in what? Can any of you finish that? I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in what? Truth. That's right. It talks about how important it is to always walk in truth, always be truthful. All right, so we're talking about God. Now, Let's talk about Jesus. Does Jesus always tell the truth? All right. Jesus is truth. The Bible says that Jesus came and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. Jesus is the living word. He is truth. And Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. So Jesus is truth. All right. And then there's a trinity. There's the Father and the Son, and what's the third person in the Trinity? You want to tell me? What? That's right, the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit always tell the truth? But Jesus said, but when the Comforter is come, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit always speak the same and they always speak truth. 
There's never anything that is not truth. So since we know that everything that relates to God is true or truth, then where does untruth come from? Like lies. Where do lies come from? What do you think? That's right. They come from Satan. So everything that is not true is from Satan. And you'll see up here, there are two camps. They are mutually exclusive. They do not intermingle. The, the possibility of Satan being able to go over in the truth camp is about as likely as your mother's going into a den of rattlesnakes. Would they do that? No. No. And we know that God cannot be involved in untruth, so he doesn't come over. So there are two very separate camps. And I want to read you what Jesus said about Satan and his native tongue. What's a native tongue? Anybody know what a native tongue is? Does that make any sense to you all? What do you think? Yeah, it's your, it's your language from your home country that you know well and that you speak fluently. That is a native tongue. So in John chapter 8, Jesus tells us what Satan's native tongue is. He says in verse 43, I'm going to back up verse 42. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and am now here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? So the people Jesus was preaching to could not understand Jesus, what he was telling them, and he was telling them the what? Truth. Jesus was telling them the truth, and they could not comprehend what he was saying. And Jesus tells them why. You cannot, you're not able to hear what I say. You belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and we'll come back to that later in the message. Not holding to truth, for there is no truth in him. So he said, Satan doesn't have any truth in him at all. None. There's no truth in him. When he speaks lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, we'll put it this way. Have you ever tried to speak a foreign language? A language that you didn't know. Well, when we went to visit Daniels and Joetta, not Daniel, sorry, and Rachel, I meant to say, Daniels and Rachel and the other team members in Jordan, Daniel made me a little cheat sheet. He put some basic Arabic words on there, and I had it, and I could say, well, this word here means this, but I still couldn't twist my tongue around it. I couldn't say it right. It was not my native language. It just didn't work for me to try to speak that. And when I was young, where I went to church, sometimes preachers would come from Pennsylvania to preach, and they were used to preaching in Dutch or German, and they would preach in English, and sometimes they would get to a phrase, and they'd really want to express how they felt about something, and they would kind of get stuck, and they'd say, well, in German we'd say, and it just flowed, because it was their native language. It just flowed out without any effort. So I believe that Satan does attempt to quote Bible verses. He quoted some Bible verses to Jesus. He talked to Eve. There's other times where, Jesus, where Satan attempted to do that, but it, it generally isn't exactly right. It's, it's different. It, it just doesn't come natural for Satan to speak truth. It's not his native language. So when he even, I think when he tries to, he really can't because it's very different. So I want to read you a couple of stories from a man. His name is Merle Burkholder. He's one of my favorite people. He spent his life serving in missions all over uh, northern youth, and uh, he's, he lives in Sioux Lookout, but he spent a lot of time in Haiti, and, and he does open hand in Mexico and other things. But he's getting older now, and he doesn't go as far as he used to. He told me, I talked to him uh, a week and a half ago at a minister's conference, and he said he doesn't do the open hand program anymore because they go out in Mexico and they climb up in the mountains, and they have just a blanket, and they have to sleep on concrete floors, and then they get up, and they climb a mountain again the next day to go to another village. And he said he's 71, and he just can't keep up with the other men, so he quit doing that. So he's, he's given his life to God, and he's written two books, and the second one just came out. It's called Surprise of Success. So tell your parents you really want this book, and uh, we ought to have a library too probably. So the first one is titled Tell the Truth. It has 60... 
It has 65 personal stories from his life growing up. It has a section on childhood, a section on youth, and then a section on adulthood. But he has two stories from his youth that I want to read this morning and help us understand the importance of truth. When I was eight or nine years old, my Christmas gift was a toy electric train set. It was really nice. It had a controller so I could make the train go faster or slower. It also had little white pills I could put in the engine smokestack, and those pills made puffs of white smoke billowing out. Any of your children ever seen a train like that? How about some of you adults? Yeah, I remember that. My grandparents had a train like that. Yes. Oh, good, good. Make steam. That's great. Wonderful. Well, I remember I used to go to my grandparents' house, and they had one of those little trains. Make white puffs. During, during my Christmas break from school, I enjoyed playing with my train. It was a sad day when school started in January, and I had to go back to the classroom. Each day, I could hardly wait for my afternoon when I could get off from the school bus and be able to play with my train. You know, it's like you just want to get home and play and enjoy yourself, and that's what he did. One morning he woke up, I woke up, and I decided I could not wait until afternoon to play with my train. So what do you think he did? I decided I wanted to stay home and play with my train all day. So I decided I'd tell my mom I was sick and then I could stay at home. So I got dressed and went downstairs and told my mom I didn't feel good. What hurts? She said, oh, he said, my head hurts, my throat hurts, my tummy hurts, my arms hurt, my legs hurt. He said, I just hurt all over. Mom, I'm sick. I cannot go to school. She took my temperature and it was normal. He said, I don't care what the thermometer says, I'm sick. I can't go to school. Finally, she said, okay, I'll have to stay home from school. So she put me on the sofa in the living room and covered me with a blanket. Lying there on the sofa, I could see my new train set across the room. This is working, I thought. As soon as the other children get on the bus, I'll be able to play with my train. My mom did not have a driver's license, so I knew that once uh, the children left, Dad took the children to school. He couldn't come back and get me, so I would be at home play with my train all day. As soon as the school bus left, and not too long after that, I told my mom, I'm feeling better now. I think I'll play with my train. Mother said, oh, no, you won't. You are sick, and you're going to lay on the sofa all day until the other children come home from school. So there I was all day on the sofa in the living room, the sight of my train, but unable to play with it. Finally, the others came home, and I could get up and play. A few weeks later, I woke up one morning, and I really did feel sick, and I went downstairs and told my mom, I don't feel good, and she said, oh, no, you're not playing that trick again, son. You are going to school. So off I went to school, and the longer the day went, the worse I felt. After lunch, the teacher sent me to the school nurse, and I spent the afternoon on a cot in the school office. Mom couldn't come and pick me up because she didn't have a driver's license. This thing isn't working out too good for him. When your mama don't have a driver's license, you really have trouble when you tell the untruth about going to school. When I got home from school, my mom saw that I was very sick, and that evening my dad came home from work. He took me to the doctor, and I had a high fever. While I was sitting in the chair in the doctor's office, I fell off. The doctor asked me why I fell, and I told him that the nurse had pushed me off the chair. I was sure she had, but of course she hadn't. My fever made me think so. It was so high, I was delirious. I was diagnosed with pneumonia and was quite sick for over a week. I couldn't go back to school for about two weeks, and most of the time I felt too bad to play with my train. It would have been much better for me if I had not lied to my mother when I really wasn't sick. It was a lesson I learned the hard way. Lie not one to another, the Bible says in Colossians 3.9. Sometimes it's hard to tell the truth, but the best idea, it is the best idea in the long run. So that lie that he told there was one that he made up. He made up an untruth and told his mother. There's another kind of untruth as well, and I'm going to read you another story that he did again when he was young. When I was young, my family lived on a small farm. We had sheep, chickens, steers, and ponies. We rode our ponies a lot of our free time, and our neighbor boy also had a pony, so my brother and I and our neighbor boy would ride our ponies together. We had 12 sheep in the pasture, and we didn't pay much attention to them except to feed them and shear them. But sometimes we would ride our ponies in the pasture, and they would get there as three boys, and they would pretend they were cowboys, and they would ride their ponies up and down through the pasture chasing the sheep, and their goal was to get close enough to the sheep that they could jump off of the pony and land on top of the sheep and bear hug his neck and wrestle the sheep to the ground and pretend they were cowboys uh, taking care of cattle out on the ranch, on the range. So they did that, and they got pretty good at it. I don't think their dad knew what they were doing. Anyway, they also had a creek in their pasture field, and they decided they wanted a swimming hole. So they got sticks and mud and whatever they could find, and they built a dam, and they blocked off the stream, and they got it about four foot deep at one place. 
and that was their swimming hole. And they could go out there, and they just had a wonderful time that summer. And one day they were out there playing cowboy, and one of the boys tackled a sheep, and he didn't realize how close he was to the stream bank. And when he tackled his sheep, the boy and the sheep and everything rolled down the stream bank into their swimming hole. And they were not very big boys. And they got together, and they pulled, and they pushed, and they shoved on that sheep. And the bank was muddy and wet, and they could not get that sheep out of the swimming hole. And the longer it went on, the more trouble they had, because the longer the sheep was in the swimming hole, the wetter he got, and the heavier he got, until finally he sunk. And they didn't want to go tell their parents what they did, so they decided they were never going to tell anybody what happened because the sheep was in the bottom of the swimming hole, and nobody would ever find out that he was a dead sheep down there. The problem was they couldn't swim anymore. So it really took the fun out of both being cowboys and swimming. They were kind of done with both things. Well, it wasn't too long until they had a hard rain came, and the water kind of flooded and the creek got high. What do you think happened? Well, it washed their homemade dam away, and it washed their buck sheep's uh, carcass up on the shore, and they were in big trouble. So what kind of a lie was that? That was a lie of not telling what they should have. See, there's two, there's two ways to be dishonest. The one is to make up a story that's not true, and the other one is to not tell something that you know is true. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. So anyhow, that's the lesson for this morning. As we think about these stories and these boys, just remember, all of us are tempted not to tell the truth sometimes. That's, that's one of the things that we are tempted with, okay, because that's Satan's way. But remember, always tell the truth because that's God's way. We don't want to be over in the other camp with Satan. And always know that when we tell the truth, even if it's hard, even if it's hard, it would have been really hard for them boys to go in and tell their dad, look, Dad, we were playing cowboy today, and we drowned one of your sheep. But it would have been so much better if they had just told the truth right away, and everything would have been good. So God bless you. You can go back to your seats. Greetings in the Master's name to each of you. It's good to be together this morning and continue to study. Good Sunday school lesson and good time together. I encourage you all to get this book if you have children. It's called Surprised by Success. It's really good, practical stories from a man's life. And the most amazing thing about Merle is, is he doesn't forget the details of those stories. He can just get up there and just tell stories from his childhood on and on. Very fascinating. Uh, at our minister's conference, John Koblenz would teach first and then he would teach second. They each had, I guess they each had four sessions. They each had four, minute, four uh, sessions. And uh, so John Koblenz would get up and he had an overhead and he had points A, B, C, and D. And, and Merle would get up and, and he would tell stories and illustrations. And it was just two men, totally different uh, approaches and abilities, but both very captivating in their presentation. So it was a good week for us to be together. Also, I want to mention this. Uh, some of us were invited to uh, Stephen and Alice Kugler's last Sunday evening for supper and was able to be with a portion of Amos uh, Stolzfus' family. I think there was a busload of them. I don't know. The bus was full and overflowing. They filled the seats and then held children on their laps is how they, they came down. And it was a very good time. Those people were very loving and kind and congenial, and they appreciate uh, the friendships that they have continued to nurture here in Virginia. So continue to pray for them. They're also very mobile people. The ones that came down here, most of them have already moved and helped start two different settlements since Amos passed away. They lived in Indiana County, Pennsylvania. Now they're back in Center County. Uh, and so, yeah, very interesting evening with those people. So continue to remember them as they serve the Lord in their setting. All right. Uh, this morning's message is just a finishing up of material we didn't get to last time when I preached one titled, The Most Requested Message. So I invite you back to James 3, and we will conclude the second half of that message that we had then. James 3 and verse, we will begin with verse 1. As we 
look at these verses together this morning, I'd like for us to consider this reality or this question in our mind. Is there any other body part that the Word of God has as much to say about as it does this little member that wags in our mouth, the tongue? Notice. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in the word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. We put bits in horses' mouths, and they may, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also ships, which though they be very great, are driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, wheresoever the, the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. You see, it's like starting a little fire. We've had some fires in our neighborhood recently where people were burning fields off to, for weed control, and they start with just a little fire, but when the wind gets it, it just goes. And that's how our tongue is, the things we say. It can just go. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue amongst our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For if every kind of beast and birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. For out of the same mouth proceeded blessing and cursing, my brothers ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth in the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? Let him show it out of a good conversation, his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Where envy and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I think I'll go ahead and read a few verses from 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you, Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, ye cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. I'll stop reading there at that point. So Jesus, when he was talking to the Jewish people there in John 8, 44, where I read to the children in a children's meeting, where he talked about Satan speaking in his native tongue. I find it interesting in that passage that he said he also is a murderer from the beginning. It's just an interesting little insert there in a, in a passage about speech and truth and untruth. But as I've thought about that and meditated on it for a number of weeks in preparation for this message, it makes sense to me. What are the three things that we identify that Satan does? Steal, kill, and destroy, right? So he's a murderer. That doesn't mean he just takes physical life. That means he takes spiritual life. He takes reputations. He takes friendships. He takes churches apart. All of that with this little thing called the tongue. He still kill and destroy. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way back to the Father because there was a gulf when sin came in. Satan spoke to Eve and said, Hath God said? So Satan desecrated truth. Jesus came back as truth. Death came into the picture when sin came into the picture, and Jesus brought life to replace that death. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
He comes that we may have life and have it more abundantly. He comes to heal. He comes to bring together. He comes to unify. Satan comes to steal, kill, destroy, split, divide, and cause trouble. So, that is the difference. I mentioned in the last message here, I referenced a gentleman uh, passed away in May by the name of Tim Keller, Dr. Tim Keller, uh, and he wrote on forgiveness for his last endeavor before he died. Anyway, he said that what is, and I'm repeating from the last message, he said that he feels, whether he lives long enough to see it or not, that every evangelical church group is going to split. And he said the driver behind the division is self-assertion. Now, we look at it and we say, okay, it's LGBT or it's, it's whatever. And he's looking at the broad picture, and he said, churches are splitting over self-assertion. That is in contrast to death to self, humility, and unity. You see, that's, that's what he had. Anyhow, he followed that up with this idea that we live in a society, and we have to read this to get it right, that we live in a society that is becoming increasingly more incapable of expressing kindness. Now think about it. He said, we are living, the church of today is residing in a world that is becoming increasingly incapable of expressing kindness. You think about that. Do you agree with that or you disagree with that? Bob, when you were a young man, politicians never really got along, but they, they hate each other with the hatred they have today. No, they didn't. People could be different and still be congenial. I have changed his saying a little bit, and I've said it this way. We live in a society that is becoming increasingly more incapable of expressing civility. And that word means politeness, courtesy, and behavior or speech toward mankind and reverence toward God. That's civility. And I believe it is very true. His, I believe his observation is true. He lived in Manhattan. He was an inner-city church planner, so he's seen the worst of the worst. And it was out of that perspective that he wrote. I believe that's true, very true. There is just a, uh, we just live in a world with, that anybody that don't think the way I think is just, you know, that's just the, the unconverted around us, that is the drive of the day. So are we, within the church, are we being influenced by the decline of civility in society. Think about that. Are we being influenced by the decline of civility in society? Are we becoming less loving towards the brother who may not come out exactly where I do? Or do we have no place for the brother who comes out differently than I do, or sister? Civility in general society is being replaced by the trash and bash everyone who thinks differently than me mentality. That, that's really what drives talk radio. Bash and trash everyone who thinks differently than me mentality. Doesn't matter which side it's on. That's the drive. I personally think that's probably one of the greatest dangers we face if we listen to radio. It'll take us, I'm afraid it's taking us away from the concept of absolute death to self and that our role here in the world is to present Jesus Christ to everybody. Because changing someone's political proclivities will not save their soul. But if Jesus Christ saves their soul, he can fix everything else. So it's a waste for we as Christians to get get caught up in political proclivities and all that type of thing because it is not what the problem is. The problem is the unconverted heart, the heart that is not dead to self and alive only 
in Jesus Christ. So, so anyhow, so much for that. So, there's a battle. There's a battle between these two kingdoms going on, the kingdom of truth and the kingdom of lies. Where is that battle taking place? Can we observe it? I invite you now, we looked at we looked at practical outworkings of it in the last message, and this morning our goal is to dig deeper and look at the spiritual realities of what's going on in the battle in the spiritual world. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. We'll pretty much be in Ephesians now for the rest of the message. Ephesians 6 and verse 10, we know that as coming into putting on the armor of God. But before he tells us what the armor is, he tells us why we need an armor. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles there is his schemes, that's his tactics, it's whatever Satan uses to, to do his three-phase work of killing, stealing, and destroying. So we need to put on the whole armor of God. Why do we need to put on the whole armor of God? The answer is in verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. How many of you have ever observed with your eyes the things we just looked at in verse 12? Maybe if you're in the inner city, you've done street ministry, you may have seen things that you almost felt like you could see the spirit world. Some very depraved things going on. But we can't see with our physical eyes what is going on in that realm. But I believe there's so much more going on there than what we can even comprehend. We know that Satan went into God's presence and he conversed with God about this man Job, and they set up a test uh, for Job. Uh, there's, there's a lot going on there in that world that I don't think we understand. So, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, or in light of that reality, we have to take on the whole armor of God. You may be able to stand to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, and it goes on to talk about we need to have truth, we need to have righteousness, we have the gospel of peace, we have the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, prayer, etc. So our, our subject this morning is not the armor. The subject this morning is why we need the armor and what's going on there. So let's back up now to Ephesians, the second chapter. And it's talking about conversion. And you hath he made alive, who were dead in trespass and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to doing what you wanted to do of your own power. Did I read that right? No. Wherein times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. What he's saying is, in that realm of spirit world that we cannot observe with our eyes is the forces that direct us. And he's not saying, you did what you wanted to do because you were your own man. He said, you lived the way you lived because you were being driven and controlled by the prince of the power of the air. So if anybody tells you that they don't want anything to do with religion, they don't want anything to do with Christianity, they want to be free, that's wrong. The Scripture is very clear in Romans chapter 6 that we're either bondservants of Satan or we're bondservants of Jesus Christ. We are never our own. We're doing one or the other. All right. Now let's go down to chapter 3, verse 7. Now I'm going down to verse 9. 
He's talking about, Paul is talking about his ministry, and then he begins to, de, begins to describe that ministry in verse 9, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Christ Jesus. Now verse 10, to the intent that now unto principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purchased, which he purposed, in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll read it in NIV. His intent, God, now verse 9, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, the principalities of the powers of the air, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I may be wrong in this. Help me if I am. But I understand these verses to say that the, the spirit world, the principalities and the powers of the air, are observing the church. And God is showing, his intent is, he's manifesting his power and his will through the church. Previous to this, the Scripture said that these were things that the prophets and other people longed to look into, but they couldn't because they were in the Old Covenant. But now in the New Covenant, God has given His power into our lives. We identify with the death of Jesus Christ. We also identify with His resurrection, and the Spirit of God comes in and dwells in our hearts, and, he, and we are empowered by the Spirit of God to do the will of God. And through that indwelling presence, collectively in the church, God is showing to the principalities and the powers there His manifold wisdom and the power of God through His bride, the church. That's how I understand that. So, you say, so what? <laughs> What's that matter? Does it matter that, that the church, the prized possession of God, purchased through the blood of Christ, is put on display before the principalities and the rulers in the heavenly realm. How many of you remember when Willis Hurst had revival meetings for us? We were meeting at Pike Church. It was the winter of 1617 because we were remodeling the back of this church. Remember, we went over there. How many of you remember he preached a sermon on how our words possibly give Satan ammunition to use against our brothers and sisters in the church? If y'all remember that. I have. It really impressed me. I've thought about it a lot the last four years, or five years, however many it's been. What he is saying is that these powers, he believes that these powers that be observing hear what we say. The words of our mouth, our tongues, all of that, here's what we say. Actually, I'm going to read some verses now. I was going to save them last. I need to read them now. So you understand that. Revelation 12, 9 and 10. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So that's that part of that's the that's the evil side of the prince of the of the, of the heavenly realm. There's the there's God, there's Jesus, there's the Holy Spirit, there's the, the angels that are not fallen. On the other side of that realm we have Satan and his demons and the fallen angels. All right. So they were cast out. Verse 10. Now, this is, this is as things are winding down in, in the book of Revelation. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now has come salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. This is talking about Satan. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. So what is Satan doing right now in the presence of God as it relates to each one of us as Christians. I believe that Satan is accusing us before God and saying, you're no good. You've got this, 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 Philip's got this problem and he has this problem and he's no good. Willis said that we need to seriously consider are the words we're speaking giving and his demons and the angels ammunition to use against our brothers and sisters in the church.
Ephesians 4. Verse 17. That we... I'll drop down a bit. Yeah, verse 17. Therefore, in testifying the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, Jesus said in the Gospels that the reason the crowds could not understand his parables is because Satan had blinded the eyes of their heart. In other words, in this realm of spiritual warfare, these unconverted people who are choosing, choosing to reject Jesus had opened the door for Satan to close the eyes of their hearts. And he's saying, this is who you were. Your understanding was darkened. You're alienated from God through ignorance because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling had given themselves over to lasciviousness to work uncleanness, all uncleanness with greed. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that putting off the concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So at conversion, there is a transformation. There's a renewing of the spirit of the mind. And out of that renewing, we switch camps. We come over into God's camp where there's truth and no lying, out of the camp where there's lying and no truth. All right? And you have put on a new man after which God has created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And it's bringing out in this passage the importance of always speaking truth because what I speak and what you speak affects the whole. We are not individuals. We are a body of believers. Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. And he goes on to talk about all of that. So that's what we are not to do. But he said in place of that, in this transformed mind, as you've changed camps, this is what we are supposed to do. If we're a thief, we quit stealing, we start working, we start giving. And then verse 29 starts to talk about the transformation of the tongue. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, they may minister grace unto the hearers. And I said this in the last message. Verse 29 here encompasses what God intends us to use our tongues for. That which is good, that which is edifying, and that which ministers grace. And then on top of, and, and then to sort of drive that home, he says in verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby ye are sealed with the day of redemption. Well, how do we grieve that spirit? Verse 30 tells us, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another tenderly, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So, I'd like for us to think deeply about this. Is it possible for us as Christians, whoever, any Christian anywhere in the world, is it possible for us as Christians to outwardly appear to be an Christ when in reality we are an accomplice of Satan? And I choose the word accomplice carefully. <laughs> Because an accomplice is someone who assists in a crime, generally a murder, and Satan is to murder, steal, kill, and destroy. So is it possible for us to outwardly put on that we're an upstanding member of the body of Christ, and in reality, we are still in Satan's camp and helping him out? Because we are not speaking the truth in love in our conversations in life. Because if our speech is not sanctified, we are giving Satan ammunition to use against the church and our fellow Christians to steal, kill, destroy, and murder. If you haven't picked up it, I agree with Brother Willis. I think he was right in that. 
So, what do we do about it? 1 Peter 1.22 says, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and the unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Let's do a little test. If you're married here, I'm assuming that your spouse is the person you love the most, second to Jesus Christ, or I hope it's in that order, second to Jesus Christ in the whole realm of your life, okay? Now, I know there's a few people who do this, but they don't actually love their spouse. But if you love your spouse, would you intentionally go out and say things about your spouse behind their back to give other people ammunition to use against them and tear them down? Would you do that? I hope you're saying absolutely not. I would never do that. That don't mean that your spouse is perfect. (laughs) That means that you have chosen to love your spouse through imperfections, what have you. And that's the way God intends it. You should be together. You should be one. You should be a force to be reckoned with that nobody can get between you, okay? But does God call us to love our brothers and sisters any less? No. No. We should never have conversation that gives our brothers and sisters or anybody in the community, in addition to the prince of the power there, ammunition to think negatively about each other. Ever. Because if we do, we don't truly love each other. Because if we truly have a concern, we're going to be with that brother saying, I love you, that sister, I love you, and I'm burdened about what I see in your life. But we won't tell someone else. 1 John 4, 6 through 8. We are of God, and he that knoweth God heareth us, and he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, the scripture again and again as I've studied this I keep saying there's there's two camps there's no third camp there's a spirit of truth there's a spirit of error in James there's wisdom that's from above it's that's from God there's wisdom that's from below below that is sensuous and devilish and every evil work comes out of that and James says that all strife comes out of that type of wisdom so there's two spirits there's truth and untruth and there's knowledge from there's False wisdom from Satan and true wisdom from God. There are two camps. There is no third camp. And out of that, John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So he said it's just you can't be a follower of God and not love. And we can't love and not edify. So it just narrows us down to what God calls us to do. In verse 29 again, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. That's what God calls us to. But does that come natural to us? The answers are sounding no. Before uh, news commentator Paul Harvey died some years ago, he said that during the, the during his career, Every major news organization had started a separate channel to do only good news. Each news organization, ABC, NBC, CBS, whatever, uh, they all decided they was going to have a separate channel and do only good news. He said not one of those organizations was able to keep it up for a whole year. He said it lost so much money they shut it down in less than a year because people didn't tune in. Why? Because the depraved human mind craves dirty laundry. The depraved human mind likes to hear the negative. It likes to hear the bad stuff. See, it makes us feel better about ourselves if we can kind of dwell on how bad the other person is. And that's what. And he said, they didn't last. It just didn't work out. So, Philippians 4.8, you don't need to turn there, it's one verse. Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So he said all the major newscasting companies decided they were going to do that, and they went bankrupt in less than a year because the depraved world that we live in didn't want to hear what 
they had to say. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 12 in conclusion. Matthew 12 and verse 31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven men. That should be one of the most challenging verses in the Scripture to us. Now verse 32. Whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither this world or the world to come. He's zeroing in on our speech again. Verse 33, either make a tree good, and his fruit will be good, or else make a tree corrupt, and his fruit will be corrupt, for a tree is known by his fruit. Another illustration by Jesus saying there are only two camps. There's no third. There's no middle ground. There's no having one foot in one camp and one foot in the other. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And that's why I said earlier what I said about people needing conversion rather than transformation. Our mouth is an expression of our heart. Our mouth is an expression of who we really are. And we can try to guard that little thing and say what we know people, what we should say, but if our heart isn't right, it'll slip out from time to time. And I'll close with this verse, these two verses. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak they shall give an account of, therefore, in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Our tongue gives evidence. If we're crucified in our own will and life, and if we're living in reverent fear of God, our tongue also, the way we talk about each other also indicates whether we have a reverent fear of God. Our tongue also gives evidence if we love God and our fellow man more than we love ourselves. Two greatest commandments, love God, love others. So I've been studying on this for some months. It's been, like I said last time, it's been one of the most challenging studies for my own life that I've done in a long time. And here's my conclusion for us as a body. If we're serious about spending eternity in heaven and assisting our brothers and sisters in getting there, we as a church body will be just as vigilant about dealing with sins of the tongue as we are about dealing with sins of immorality. Can we have a song?